Hello, everyone, and welcome to another installment of Podcasts 360, your go-to resource for medical news and clinical updates. In this podcast, our moderator, Jessica Bard of Consultant 360, is joined by two researchers, Dr. Parth Raleigh of Temple University Hospital and Dr. Victor Test of the Texas Tech Health Science Center and Medical School, who recently presented their research at CHEST 2021 on patients with severe pulmonary embolism who are hemodynamically unstable. Well, I'm Dr. Victor Test at the Texas Tech Health Science Center and Medical School in Lubbock, Texas. I'm Parth Raleigh. I'm from Philadelphia. I work at Temple University Hospital, and uh, I hope you all are enjoying CHESS 2021. Perfect. Thank you all for joining us today. Can you please just give us a brief overview of your session and your research, please? Well, uh, I was tasked with talking about the use of inferior vena cava filters, which are a mechanical device to prevent uh, travel of blood clots from the lower extremities to the, to the lungs and patients with severe pulmonary embolism. The, the definition of severe pulmonary embolism is generally considered to be people who are hemodynamically unstable. Um, there are some uh, other criteria that you can use, but generally that's that's the case. And in this case, uh, there's a ro- robust amount of literature, but there are really no randomized controlled trials. And so what we are left with are uh, retrospective analysis or secondary analysis from other studies. And the studies in patients with severe pulmonary embolism and i.e hemodynamically unstable pulmonary embolism or massive PE have not really been focused on in recent years because the focus has been on submassive pulmonary embolism, which is hemodynamically stable with increased risk factors. But in that subset of patients who are hemodynamically unstable with a significant compromise, either in oxygenation or in their hemodynamics, there have been a large number of studies looking back retrospectively, some of them quite large, thousands of patients over many years, looking at what happened to the these patients and, and how they're treated. And a number of these studies show that in patients who are in the most fragile, the most highest risk, that when you place an IVC filter within the first 48 hours of presentation, that you can significantly decrease their risk of death. Of course, uh, the, the risk in a patient with pulmonary embolism for death is the highest in the first 48 hours. And that is particularly true in patients who are unstable. Now, while this, this research is not definitive, it's certainly very suggestive, and I think almost overwhelming in, in terms of the volume published over years and consistent over time and decades. No, I, I think, Victor, that was great. I think, I think what's, what's your experience of using IVC filters over the course of years? I mean, do you think that we have decreased the use of filters as we go more and more? I mean... Yeah, I think in the, you know, in, in the medical intensive care unit and medical services, the use of the IVC filter has dropped dramatically. And I think actually that's mostly appropriate. You know, the, you can't show that patients that are hemodynamically stable have a benefit. And if you look at the guidelines, they, they diverge somewhat, but they're pretty consistent that anticoagulation is the preferred treatment. And then there are caveats. For example, in the American College of Chest Physicians antithrombotic guidelines, it's strictly can you, if you, an IVC filter for people who can't be anticoagulated. And in the Society of Vascular Interventional Radiology, they have several caveats, hemodynamic instability uh, in, in uh, aggressive therapies, such as surgical embolectomy, catheter-directed therapy, thrombolysis, 
uh, that you could consider placing an IVC filter. But I think the number of filters placed in the medical services decreased substantially. I think there's still a, a significant number of uh, filters that are placed in circumstances where the literature isn't quite as clear. But this one subset, I'm quite certain where that the number of IVC filters that are placed in the hemodynamically unstable patient after they get thrombolysis or whatever method is chosen is probably underutilized given the, the literature that we have. No, I think, I think those are great points. And I think one of the things that I struggle is that when I, every time I make a call of a filter, I think I make sure that those patients are followed up very closely because we have a very clear mandates when those, how long those filters should stay in. Because I think removing the filter and not removing the filters, I mean, after placing them, I think is something where we always struggle because they get placed in patient when they are removing those patients out in the community. Yeah, you know, uh, at one of my previous facilities, we had a pretty robust PERT team, which worked really well at capturing those patients and getting them back to clinic so we could make sure that they had follow-up for the removal of their filters. And I, I agree that uh, I think, uh, you know, once a filter is placed, the chances of it getting removed are not, uh, not great, uh, even in this era of almost entirely retrievable filters. And I think that's a, that's a mistake. The risk of a filter placement in the acute setting is really quite small. Most of the risks from filter placement uh, come from uh, over the long haul rather than the short run. And particularly the risk of antithrombotic or thrombotic complications goes up over, over years, not necessarily in, in, in terms of days or weeks. I think that's a perfect segue into the talk that I gave it. I will be talking about at CHESS 2021, which is kind of brings about the patients who are an intermediate risk PE. And I would start with saying that uh, the word intermediate risk PE and a submassive PE itself leads to a diagnostic and therapeutic confusion uh, because uh, the guidelines, uh, as you all may recall, that AHA and American College of Chess Physician guidelines use the word submassive PE, which is kind of you have a low risk PE. And as Victor was saying, you have a massive PE, which is where patients are crashing. And then there is a whole spectrum, which we call it a submassive PE. The European classification used the word intermediate risk PE, and uh, they kind of dig into it. And then they, can, they divide the intermediate risk PE into a two subcategories of intermediate low risk and intermediate high risk. And um, I think that is why it is a little more important, because I think if you take whole PE as a spectrum, the submassive PE represents or 50 to 60% of your all PEs. Then you divide that spectrum into two and take uh, try to classify into intermediate low risk PE, which tends to make more as low risk PE is uh, close to 50%. And then, then leaves another 10% of intermediate high risk PE, which is closer to the massive PE. And then I think when we say closer, there are those patients are not hypotensive or they're not crashing, but they have a tendency to close. And we like to believe that those patients are at the spectrum where there's some form of advanced intervention may help. So I think one of the questions that I was answering in my talk was uh, which patient uh, you should be doing? Is it meant for everyone? So answer is no. Answer is that not all the intermediate PEs should be offered advanced reperfusion therapy. And when I say advanced reperfusion therapy, it could be any form of therapy. It could be a low dose uh, thrombolysis. It could be a full dose systemic thrombolysis based on case by case basis, or it can be in the form of any catheter directed thrombolysis. I think we are at the dawn where we have an advantage uh, of having a lot of catheter based treatment options that are out there. So there are basically, if I have to classify, there are three types of catheters uh, that are out there. One is a simple locally placed catheters uh, with the ultrasound guidance, which ultrasound base delivers and dissolves, I mean, opens up the clot and you deliver the drug into it, which we call it, uh, um, which is a catheter-directed thrombolysis. 
Then there are catheters, which does not involve thrombolysis, where you go in and do a suction embolectomy, which is sucking out the clots. And the third option, and in recent time, is a pharmacomechanical, where there is a combination of uh, one of those, uh, where you have a little bit of mechanical action and you have a pharmacological drug administration. So I think we are excited that we have all the three different devices that are not available 10 years ago in the patients of subgroup of high-risk PE patients, where you can absolutely use uh, systemic uh, TPA and also in the maybe in a selected group of intermediate risk PE patients, high risk intermediate high risk PE patients, uh, where you can consider those treatment options. I think what is changing in next two years or next three years, I think, is a randomized controlled trials. So um, I was at a recent PERT meeting where there is an announcement of uh, at least two big trials. One of them is high pythor trial, comparing a catheter directed thrombolysis to a systemic anticoagulation. There is another trial called peerless trial coming up, which is combining one form of catheter-directed uh, treatment with other form of catheter-directed therapy. And uh, there is another ongoing trials, uh, including a rescue trial, which is also going above and beyond looking at not only the acute RV savior in terms of acute P, but looking at the long-term and follow-up outcomes, meaning that are we doing those interventions, meaning that doing a reducing a thrombus burden, uh, does it impact uh, on CTEF or CTED? or a post-PE syndrome. So I think the field is changing, field is exciting. I still don't think that uh, every every patient with the based on current classification system should be subjected to those treatments. But I think there are points that we want to look above and beyond in terms of functional class recovery, overall long-term outcomes above and beyond of just saving the RV when we talk about this uh, catheter-directed treatment options. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think the, the, the bit, you know, we've been studying thrombolysis and even catheter-directed thrombolysis, you know, for almost 50 years, the UPET trial was a catheter-directed therapy, right. which a lot of people forget. Now, granted, it was with urokinase, which has a different set of, of issues. But, you know, I think the the granularity in trying to separate out uh, the people with low intermediate risk, which is kind of a, a paradox, but the lower risk group in the, inter, in the submassive PE and the higher risk group is, is difficult. And I think we all would like to believe that if you go and you take that clot out sooner and, and you get rapid resolution, that you have better long-term outcomes. I, and, you know, and, and we do need really good studies because I, these, these catheter-directed therapies have a momentum all their own. I mean, it's hard to argue with, wow, look at all that clot that came out and boy, the blood flow is better. RV works better. But, uh, you know, unfortunately, even the more recent thrombolytic trials didn't show uh, benefit in terms of two, two and four year follow up. So we really need that. Those patients, I think that's the subset of people that might benefit from IVC filter placement. But I think, uh, you know, we're not going to get that in a study. What we're going to end up having to do is do registry, probably studies to uh, assess, you know, when a patient undergoes thrombolysis or undergoes uh, catheter-directed therapies, uh, did they get a filter or not? Collect that data prospectively in a registry form. And I think that'll have more force and weight than uh, our current retrospective data for P IVC filters. But you uh, you summed up the the world of catheter-directed therapy really, really well. And, and and I think, I think Victor, I think our talks kind of ties into each other. And one of the things that I think at least, I mean, I think you've been on the field a little longer, way longer than me. But I think one of the things that have happened is that we always uh, used to put the filters, at least that was our strain, uh, to say, look, prevent a second hit. Yes, you have a PE, but you have a big DVT, and you're worried about a second hit, but patients are not unstable that you don't want to do, uh, give systemic TPA. 
And and now, I mean, maybe some of those patients may benefit from uh, catheter-directed therapies that you are treating a PE and then you don't have to worry about a second hit. And that's why your threshold to call for the IVC filter, even in those group where we say a second hit would kill a patient, maybe has gone down. And maybe it's just a theory, but I think it's just some of the observations. Maybe that is the group that we should focus on, large DVTs with um, submassive, lower, high-risk PEs, uh, where you worry about the second hit a lot. Yeah. You know, I think that the biggest fear I think most people have with any of these therapies is bleeding, right? And when you use catheter-directed therapy, you ideally can use less fibrinolytic, but you've already got have vascular access. And so there, you know, placing a filter in that circumstance after you've done your procedure has relatively low risk compared to someone you give systemic thrombolysis uh, to and then proceed with, with filter placement. So I think there's a, there's a real potential there. And I think PERT teams will, will help that because I think it's easier than to capture these folks for follow-up and ensure that you have the long-term data than we've had previously. I think the field is exciting. And I think glad that you brought up the PERT team. And I think what I'm noticing or my experience is that I think the pulmonary and critical care physicians are integral part of the PERT teams. And I think this field is diversifying with other multi-specialty with cardiology and um, interventional radiology and diagnostic radiology. And I think this field has become, I think if I look at the publication before 2009, it used to be the pulmonary critical care. And I think now you see the publication in each journal, multiple specialties. So I think mm-hmm. overall, I think uh, we, I think pulmonary critical physicians are still a very integral part of the team. And I think uh, we have an additional members. I think we just have to figure out which is an ideal group. And I think one thing I'll add that, that I think the classifications are classification is for general guidance, but we had to identify the individual patients who are at either high or low risk of bleeding and what are the other markers of organ dysfunction. And I think recent guidelines also talk about some of the simple stuff. I mean, is the patient with the PE has a higher lactic acid? Is the patient with the PE has an inorgan damage in terms of AKI or a hyponatremia? Those are easy markers because you have it available on every patient. So maybe some of those markers should be added in your multidisciplinary stratification and decision-making process. I agree with that. I think one of the advantages of uh, pulmonary embolism response teams is that, you know, one, there are people that are interested in PE. I think a lot of, a lot of folks who, who care for PE, you know, have other interests, they're doing other things and they, you know, they take care of pulmonary embolism because it's part of the spectrum of disease that come, comes to them. Uh, but the, when you have pulmonary embolism response team, then you can factor in also the professional expertise of really multiple physicians and uh, to make the, the best decision for an individualized patient. So I think it gives you the opportunity to individualize your care in some ways that, that you wouldn't necessarily have without that expertise. I completely agree. Thank you so much. I think this was great. Yeah. Is there anything else that any, any of you would like to add? Well, now, now, Parth, correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't you get a Chess Foundation uh, grant for for venous thromboembolic research a few years ago? Yeah, I was selected for the Chess Foundation. I didn't get the grant. Uh, my grant was denied, but I was selected. And I think it was kind of funny because Dr. Lisa Moore's became my mentor. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think my path, uh, my career trajectory got changed because of Dr. Moore's uh, and her leadership. And I'm part of the Chess COVID-BT guidelines. Yeah. Um, and, oh. and then, and then you're right. Right now, we are actually the we have a grant from Jensen, which is where me and Sherry Brosnahan from New York we are kind of conducting three webinars, nine podcasts, inpatient, outpatient, three. So we have close to like I would say 15 speakers, the field experts uh, from multiple disciplines. Uh, and thanks to just 
uh, foundation grants through the Jensen Educational Grant that uh, we are putting all this this stuff out within next three months. So yeah, Dr. Moore's uh, you know shadow is quite long. You know, my first chess meeting was 1999, and I I was fortunate. I presented two ab, uh, abstracts. I, one of them got an award from the American Association of Bronchology, and the uh, and Atul Mehta gave me uh, oh. presented my award, which was pretty special. And then uh, I presented in the what they used to call the affiliates forum, or which is now, oh. you know, fellow case reports. And back then it was a competition. And um, so I presented and uh, Lisa Moores was my faculty moderator. Oh. And uh, so I ended up, I won my my section and and she presented me my award. So, you know, Lisa has, you know, affected a lot of us in positive ways, uh, you know, over the years. Uh, she doesn't like for me to tell that story because, you know, I've got so much gray hair now that it makes her feel like she's, you know, getting a little old. there forever. Yeah, but, you know, I mean, uh, it's, uh, it's amazing how someone that can touch so many lives in such a positive no. way. No, I think it, it, it's kind of funny because to me, I, I think I think Chess Foundation did a lot of changes in my academic trajectory. I think uh, I was a second year attending and then I got selected for the Chess Foundation grants uh, where people like young physicians like me got invited and I got a table with Dr. Moores and I don't think we have looked back since then. So I, I attribute a lot of stuff that sometimes you just have to ask for an opportunity and it falls. And I think I think Chess leadership has shown so me that I think my goal is to help as many as people as I can along my course in the next few years. So, well, I mean, I, as I'm also starting to get a little gray hair, so yeah. uh, I, want to, I want to help the people who have the, a little bit of black hair. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, mine is accelerating at a rapid rate. Uh, you know, the uh, the joys of being division chief, I suppose, uh, but uh, in a pandemic, no less. But yes, yeah, yes. You know, I, I, yeah, obviously, I love chest, and uh, you know, I, I, remember, I remember very clearly uh, meeting you there the day that you were at the Chess Foundation uh, Breakfast of Champions. So, well, you know, I, I think one of the things in uh, in at the chess meeting here that we need to need to need to discuss in the world of venous thromboembolism and pulmonary embolism is the uh, recent passing of uh, Master Fellow and former Chess President uh, Paul Stein. Uh, Dr. Stein was a giant in the world of, of, of venous thromboembolism, and he passed in this last year. And I think it would be we'd be remiss if we didn't honor him by mentioning him during this discussion. I think Victor does, uh, is much more capable of uh, talking about Dr. Stein. He was just a legend to me. I just read his papers. So. Yeah. Thank you all for your time today. We really appreciate it. Uh, thank you very much. We appreciate the opportunity to talk about these important subjects. And 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 look looking forward to see you guys connected uh, next year. Thank you, thank you, Chist, and uh, we are looking forward for next year. Thank you. Thank uh, you all for your time today. We're